This is the, the third Sunday after Easter. And as you, if you may know, Easter season, Easter tide, as it's called in the Christian tradition, um, it's, not, it's not a day. We think of Easter often as Easter Sunday. That's not really the case. Traditionally, the church understood Easter tide is one great celebration, one big feast day that somehow happened to encompass 40 full days of feasting. It's a, it's a, it's a one-day party that lasts 40 days. And uh, in the, actually, in the 20th century, we added another 10 days. I quite like that. I think, why not have 10 extra days to celebrate the glory of the resurrection? Uh, but these days are meant to offer us the opportunity to reflect on, the, um, on the, the many ways that the resurrection changes everything about our lives. It changes everything. It changes how we think, what we do, what we hope for, what we believe, everything. And so I just want to, on a, on a smaller um, level, reflect on just a couple things that this incredible story does to us. A couple things that it calls us into believing after the resurrection. A couple things that the resurrection does for us. Now, if you were here on the first Sunday of Easter, notice I didn't say Easter Sunday, it's still Easter Sunday, the, the first Sunday of Easter, you'll remember that we entered into this story of the resurrection by looking at the very first resurrection appearance, and that was to Mary Magdalene. It's this amazing moment. She was the very first. She was in the garden by the tomb. And uh, w- we saw their number of things, but immediately after that, if you were to continue on in that reading, you'd notice that Jesus goes on to reveal himself to the rest of the disciples. He does it multiple times. They're all in Jerusalem at this point. And so our story today follows immediately on the heels of that event. We're still in John 21. It says, in fact, in our reading that this is the third time that Jesus had revealed himself to his disciples. So here in John 21, which is I truly think one of the best readings in the Gospel of John, there is this profound moment where Peter and John and five other disciples get this third chance to see Jesus, who he really is. So I'll step into the story. They are all fishing. Peter and John, the two primary characters from our last story, aside from Mary Magdalene, who's actually a primary character, two secondary primary characters, are all fishing, which is, of course, what many of them had done as a profession. It's what they did for work. And so they're back doing what they had always done, fishing. And now, if you read commentaries on this, a lot of people will conclude that this is a scene of ultimate defeat and despair. It's kind of a moment of uh, sorrow when these disciples have uh, followed their master to the end. He has died, and they are left back fishing, doing what they had always done, almost like a a sort of a hopeful quarterback who tries to make it in the big leagues, but just ends up living back home, (laughs) working in his father's construction company or something. That's what this story feels like to some people. But that's not what's going on here. You see, remember, that they knew, all of them, that Jesus was alive. The text makes it clear. It says it. This was the third time he had revealed himself to his followers. And so surely they are amazed. Likely they're confused. That would make sense. They certainly don't know fully what Jesus is up to or what his plans are. But I don't think that their problem is one of absolute hopelessness or despair. Their problem is, their problem is, what does the resurrection actually mean for us? What does it do for us? How does it change the way we live? What does it say about our current circumstances? That's their question. 
And personally, I think that that is a somewhat relatable predicament. What does the resurrection actually mean for us? Now, I, for one, even though I <laughs> do this as a job, the next week after East, the first Sunday of Easter, I, I, there are plenty of moments where I forgot about Easter. Just don't think about it. I think that probably many of us go to church, and on Monday we forget about church entirely as well. Feel that way about the resurrection? What would it mean? What would it do for us? And this interaction between the apostles and Jesus, I think, I think it gets to the very heart, very core of what the resurrection means, both for them and for us. So I'll start back where I left off. The disciples are in their boat fishing not far from the shore. They fished, it says, this is interesting, for the entire night. So it was very, very early in the morning. And of course, you all realize this, but they're not fishing for the sake of recreation. <laughs> they're, they're not fly fishermen or something like that. This is the ancient world, and nobody would fish through the entire night for the sake of fun, not for pleasure. Nighttime in a boat is dangerous. They're fishing, in other words, because they need to make a living. They need to make money. And what that means on, on a basic level is they're not doing anything wrong. This isn't them sort of bailing out on Jesus, even though they had done that in a way. This isn't their act of protest against Jesus' power or, or his, uh, his identity. So they have fished all night. They've caught nothing. Surely nobody feels good about this. They're probably in a bad mood. Nobody stays awake all night without yielding anything and feels good about it. And then someone calls out from the shore and says, have you caught anything? Of course, answer no. And then the anonymous man calls out again, try the other side, which I could imagine might be a frustrating suggestion if you're a fisherman. Fish don't exactly hang out on one side or the other of the boat. But they do this, and the net immediately becomes full. And as you may know, this is how they were called. This is a parallel. It's a repeat scene of their first uh, request, their first invitation into following Jesus. They listened to his instruction chapters and chapters before, several years before, and they caught more than they could ever handle. And that's how their story began. And so John, the beloved disciple, as he's called in this reading, recognizes that it is Jesus. And as a side, you might remember in our Easter Sunday readings, we saw this way that Peter and John, remember those two primary, secondary characters, they go, they go running to the tomb after they hear that Jesus has risen from the dead. John gets there first, and you remember he is the first one. He looks into the tomb, and Peter catches up with him, and then he immediately blunders into the tomb. And this scene is, is just like that. John makes the realization. He says, Peter, it's Jesus. Right, Peter, it's Jesus. And then Peter immediately puts his clothes on. He had his shirt off. He's working, jumps out of the boat, and swims to the shore to meet Jesus. I think that's fascinating. John has the insight. Peter has the will. And as a total aside, I think it's important to note, some of us are impulsive. Some of us are more thoughtful and reserved. Clearly, we need both. <laughs> if you're going to start a Christian movement, you need both of those people. So if you're one of those, feel firm. You are either one of those. Now, regardless, so Peter swims in, and the other disciples move, and they haul all of the nets into shore. It says that there were so many fish, 153 of them. People have made a big deal about this. I'm not sure what that means, but we could talk about it after around coffee. They haul in all of these fish. The clear point is the net doesn't break. It is a miraculous work, something that only God could do. They haul the fish all into shore, and then Jesus has already made a fire on the beach. It says that a fire was already set into place. 
invites them to have breakfast with them, and then he instructs them. And in this scene, I, I, I've, sorry, I've said this so many times, but there's so much here that is so wonderful. I hope you will br- you'll take this home and you'll meditate on it for the rest of the week. But the thing I want you to not miss in this scene on the beach is this remarkable vision of gracious fellowship with Jesus. This profound vision of gracious, forgiving fellowship that the, the disciples share with, Jeter, with Jesus. Because remember, Peter and Jesus you've followed along through Holy Week and everything, you'll remember that they have a lot to talk about. Peter had denied Jesus three times. All of the rest of the disciples basically had as well. They had abandoned him. It says that they scattered at the crucifixion. They have all left him. And here he is alive again. And there is so much that needs to be said. So much. But notice here the way the story unfolds. It's not quite how you would expect. In verse 9, it says the charcoal fire was in place. Verse 10, Jesus asks his disciples to bring him what they've taught to contribute. Verse 12, he says, come, have breakfast with me. Verse 13, Jesus gives them the bread and the fish. And then finally, in verse 15, this is the important part. It says, after they had finished breakfast, then Jesus speaks to Peter. So now you see what's happening here. Jesus doesn't encounter his followers and then immediately give them a lecture. He doesn't jump into a sort of teaching moment, which would make a whole lot of sense given the circumstances. The first thing that he wants to do before he communicates any of the important stuff that must be said, he invites them to breakfast. Isn't that amazing? My point is, in this moment, there's so much to say. Jesus simply invites his friends to share a meal with him. Come and have breakfast with me. And I want us to not miss how amazing this scene actually is. Because again, after the resurrection, Jesus has a lot of things that he wants them to do. He has a whole mission for his followers. But the very first thing that he wants from them, the very first thing that he wants from you and from me, is fellowship. He wants you to enjoy fellowship with him before you do anything else. He wants you to enjoy his company. I had a friend come to visit me one time when I was living in, uh, in Toronto. Toronto, sorry, Tor- people from Toronto don't say the second T. I'm not from there, but I would live there for a while. I was in Toronto, and I had a friend who'd come visit, and he was in graduate school. I was also in graduate school. We uh, were not that interesting of people at that time either because all we did was read and work on papers and do graduate school stuff. So he came to visit. I hadn't planned anything out of like what we would do or what we would have to do for fun. And fortunately, he had forgotten his gloves. It was winter in Canada, so it's really cold. And so he spent the entire weekend basically looking for this particular pair of gloves that this friend really wanted. He would admit that he is kind of a fussy guy. But at the end of that weekend, as he left, we were on the train going to the airport, and he laughed. He said, you know, maybe we should always have something like missing gloves to sort of cultivate community. Maybe we should always have something to do in order to enjoy fellowship with one another. Maybe, maybe you have to have some particular medium, in other words, to have a good time. As a thought on that, I think maybe you don't. <laughs> maybe you don't. Maybe you simply need to share a meal with another person. Maybe we feel like we always need to be doing things with other people in order to validate the time spent to enjoy a relationship. 
But maybe that is not the case at all. Maybe all we need to do is take the time to stop and simply enjoy fellowship with Jesus Christ. I believe that is exactly what he's doing with his disciples. He doesn't tell them what to do. He invites them to have a meal with him. Now, I, I realize the, the sort of um, moral plea here could easily come across simply as a, as a hope that you all might spend more time doing your daily devotions, but that is not really what I'm trying to get you to do. That's not what I hope for you. What I think that this reading suggests is that we need to recognize, just like the apostles, the way that Jesus is continually pursuing us, speaking to us, inviting us to know him, helping us to see him more clearly, offering us fellowship with him and company even when we feel lonely or depressed or sort of lost, even in minor things. You know, I have just started this, uh, tried to initiate a new habit in my life where I take notes anytime I see that God has done something in my life, something I've, I've prayed for or asked him about or talked to about. I've tried to, to take notes on all the things that he's done, and I'll say, he, he doesn't always answer all of my prayer requests, of course, but the thing that this has given me is this advanced sense, I hope I keep doing it, you can help me, hold me accountable, is this greater awareness that God is continually inviting me into a deeper fellowship with him. He's, he's always at work in my life, and if I stop and take time to notice what he's done and write it down, I am abundantly blessed by this great awareness that he is with me. That's what he invites you into. That's what he invites his followers into. If you will simply take the time to be with him. So the second thing that this story means for us, and I'll, I'll be quick here. The second thing that it means for us, after Jesus has breakfast with his disciples, he begins to initiate this conversation with Peter. And you'll notice if you read through that he initiates this whole affair with a question. And that question, of course, is Simon, son of John. He uses his original name, Simon, do you love me? And he says it, he repeats it three times. So, of course, mimics the three times that Peter has denied him. And here, as they formally reconcile, I want you to notice the way Jesus' response in between each of these questions is not, Simon, do you forgive me? Yes, I for it's okay. He, he doesn't make things all tit-pat immediately. The thing that he does is he gives him a command. He has invited them into fellowship. He's given a place at his own table. And now he is saying, do you love me? If you do, here's what you need to do. And he begins, it's progressive. It starts out, feed my lambs. It ends with tend to my sheep. And there is a whole lot that we could take away from this. It has to do with Peter's particular role. You'll remember he is the rock of the church. That's what his name means. He is the, the first disciple whose responsibility it is to cultivate the body of Christ, the community of followers who will uh, uh, pursue kingdom work in the world. But I want you to notice that on a higher level, what's amazing here is the, the post-resurrection so what, the whole what do we do scenario that, that, that's initiated in them being in the boat is answered not by a simple set of ethical principles or a sort of manual, but an invitation to establish a community. The answer is community. The so what is an invitation to be part of a particular community. It is not a particular ethical code, but a body of believers. And so what he does 
when he says, Peter, will you feed my lambs? Will you tend to my sheep? As he says, this is the community of faith that I want you to initiate. The whole point is, if you want to know what to do after the resurrection, you have to participate in the life of God given in the body of believers who follow him. Again, I'm not trying to wag wag the finger and invite everyone to church. What I'm saying is you need relationships that will satisfy you, nurture you, point you to Jesus Christ, and you need relationships that you can invest your whole life into to, to help others to see Jesus Christ, to help others recognize the way that he is at work. Because the vision that Christ gives us here on the beach with the fish and the apostles is a community of faith that is so gratuitous in its generosity and it's rejoicing over the power of the resurrection that it would spill over into everything else. The command, in other words, is abide in the love of God given in the body of his people, the church. Live in fellowship with one another. Feed one another. Tend to one another. Create the kind of community that is so profound, so full of charity, caritas, that you could only, anyone would want to be in it. The image that strikes me of this is uh, one that might seem strange. Have you ever seen in movies uh, where there's the uh, uh, champagne tower? Do you all know what those, maybe you've been to a party where there's one of these. I haven't. If you have, you can invite me next time. But imagine, I want you to imagine a champagne tower. Remember, those are, um, it's, it's the scenario, I've only seen it in movies, so if I tell it wrong, you can correct me, but the idea is you stack up hundreds of champagne glasses on a table, and then uh, as the party continues, what happens is there's usually a man, he climbs up onto a ladder, he has a gigantic bottle of champagne, and he pours it into that topmost glass, and then it all spills over into the rest of the other glasses, trickles down. Eventually, every single champagne glass is absolutely full to the brim. And I think that top champagne glass, that is the image of the church. You see, the church, the church is meant to be a community of people who are so rich in affection for one another, in commitment to one another, in solidarity, in, in joy with one another, it just spills over. It can't do anything else. It just spill over into everything else. You are that top champagne glass. And so your job, in a way, is first not to do anything at all. It is simply to be filled up by Jesus Christ, by fellowship with him. Be filled with him. Enjoy fellowship with him. Receive the satisfaction of knowing his goodness for you. And when you do that, my point is, only natural thing that can happen is for it to all spill over to everyone else, your family, your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, whoever it might be, it will spill over and bless every single other person that you interact with. That is the mission of the church. In terms of particulars, I don't know exactly what that means for you. You have to think of that. Everybody is in a different sort of season. Some of you have small kids. It means you're more limited. Some of you are at the end of your careers. You have tons more time. You're all over the place. So you have to make these assessments yourself. Maybe, though, it means that you uh, rekindle a relationship with one person. You could start small. Maybe it means that you uh, get serious about a small group or something. Maybe it means that you host a fellow. We have fellows every year who come and live with us here at St. George's. You could host one of them. They can be a huge blessing to you. Maybe it means that you host one of our Duke interns. Marjorie's going to tell you about that in a minute. But there are sundry ways in which you can receive the blessings of God and then 
give it out to others. But I will say this, it will always, always be initiated in fellowship. It will always occur in fellowship. So I simply invite you in this Easter season, be filled up with resurrection hope. Be filled up with with the relationship given to you in Jesus Christ. And when you do, notice, watch, observe the way in which it will spill out and bless other people. And when you do that, rejoice in the hope that the resurrection has given you and what it has achieved in the body. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.